Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bold, Beautiful Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and I'm super excited today to be joined by Cassie Marie, who is one of our super feelers, I feel like I can say, and is has been a longtime listener and supporter of the podcast, and really excited today to hear more about your story and just about where you're at. I know we had a conversation right before, and I'm hoping that you can kind of give a little synopsis of some of your not fears, but like the email you sent me, basically, if you want to just do a little bit of a overview about that before we start and then go into your story. For sure. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. I was sharing, I emailed you this morning to say like, I was still interested in doing the interview, but I was a little like hesitant or nervous, I guess, because I feel like so many of your guests are very hopeful in their interviews and and I'm just not in a hopeful spot right now. Like sometimes I am and I am not in one of those spaces now. But I have to say, like when I was go oh, like 10 minutes of the interview, I was excited and so I got a little dopamine hit. So I'm feeling a little better <laughs> now. Yay. Awesome. And I really appreciate how honest you were in that email because I mean the purpose of this podcast is to share the variety of stories about what it's like to live with BPD. And by no means are we just looking for the positive stories, right? I mean, we don't know. I don't think anybody wants to listen to an episode where somebody's just like crying the entire time. <laughs> that might not be like super <laughs> right. helpful. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like we are fully here for the truth of what it's like to live with BPD. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your story and we can go from there? Sure. Yeah. So Kind of where I am now and my current diagnoses are I have ADHD, bipolar 2, and BPD um, are my big ones. I've, I've In the past, I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety, but I feel like those are the other ones kind of take care of that. And at some point, some psychiatrist told me that complex PTSD was in my chart as well, but no one had ever told me that. So that was really interesting. (laughs) And yeah, I'm a mom of two, um, an 11 year old and a nine year old. My 11 year old is autistic. And then both my kids have ADHD. And I live in Pennsylvania. And um, I'm married. He's a great partner and a great dad. And I'm super lucky to have a really good support system. That's amazing. And your kids are very lucky to have you too. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) It's hard. That's hard to hear. And like, I don't feel that way at all. Uh, Parenting has been a really, really difficult journey for me. It's parenting, I think, anyway, (laughs) is difficult. But then when you come into it with, you know, a luggage full of of trauma and and have all of these things going on in your brain and it's it's really difficult to navigate and then when i got my bpd diagnosis it was it was kind of a shock to my system because i had been for a while had been thinking bipolar 2 which is my diagnosis that that i had that and i ended up going into the hospital in at the end of October in 2020 
and I got the BPD diagnosis. And I had known about BPD because a couple of people in my life have it. And I had read a book called Understanding the Borderline Mother because uh, I am uh. almost certain that my mother had it. And it was like when I was reading it, I was like, it's like they were in my house. Like it was creepy how accurate it was. And um, sorry, did you read that before you got a diagnosis? Yes. So um, mm, interesting. Yeah. So uh, I guess I'll go back. So my family growing up wasn't always super stable. My parents were married and they stayed married until um, my mom died. But my dad was very much like he provided for the family uh, monetarily. And that kind of was like where his job ended. He was very like emotionally absent. And that caused my mom a lot of frustration too. But but yeah, that was, that was really difficult. And, um, and that had long-term effects on me as well. Like as I grew up trying to seek that, that father like attention for myself, but yeah, my mom was diagnosed as bipolar, but then after I learned about BPD and I started reading about it, I was like, maybe she was bipolar, but she was definitely had BPD as well. And in and, that generation, it's so unlikely that they would diagnose it anyways, right? Like, oh, yeah. She, or she or she wouldn't tell you either way. Yeah, she I mean, we were we were pretty poor growing up. We didn't have health insurance or anything. So she did go to a psychiatrist every now and then. But she definitely like viewed them as like a medication vending machine, you know, like she would go in and do the things she had to do to get the lithium. And, right. and she was on and off it, you know, like sometimes she was on it and sometimes she decided it wasn't helping. And, but yeah, things with my mom were really, oh, difficult and complicated. And she definitely created a very codependent relationship with all of her kids. I grew up with two brothers and a sister. I have two older brothers who are not counted in that but they were like out of the house before I was even born so I barely know them but life was like never peaceful like she yelled a lot she was very unstable I have finally gotten to the point with both of my parents where I can say and truly believe like they did the best they could and it really fucked me up like <laughs> it really fucked right, me up totally yeah it took me a while to get there because well-meaning people would say, well, they did the best they could. And I would be like, really? Like, cause yeah, it still it wasn't enough. feel very good. Yeah. Like no one taught me how to be a parent. And I'm like, I mean, I'm not killing it, but like <laughs> I'm doing better than they are. They were, you know? Um, yeah. It took me a while to process that anger, but I finally am to a place where I have a lot of compassion for both my parents in that while still recognizing and honoring that pain that it caused me. So yeah, and she was really emotionally manipulative. She never like physically abused me, but she was very emotionally abusive, laying guilt trips on me all the time. I went to church a lot. I was I was a church kid and I was I was, I always felt lonely, even though I had a lot of friends later on finding out I have BPD, like it makes a lot of sense, but it was like, I like to compare it to like, um, 
especially in the church growing up, you hear the illustration of like, you have to fill your own cup or like, you know, whatever. And I felt like my cup was more of like a colander or strainer where like it would get full for a moment and then it would just like drain out immediately, you know? So like I would feel good in the moment, but the second I left church, I was just like devastated and empty and felt like, like I didn't want to live anymore, you know? Um, wow. That's okay. That's such a powerful metaphor that I have never heard before in my life. Oh that's yeah. Well, so I came up with it beautifully myself. said. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's genius because we all hear the, like, you can't, you can't fill other people's cup unless your cup is filled for or whatever, you know, but yeah, yeah. Like what if your cup is broke? What if your cup is broken or not a cup at all? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, sorry, what like, age when you, when you say that you went to church and you would, you know, feel really like good at church and then you left, what age was that? Yeah. So I started going when I was in like sixth grade, I think. And then by eighth grade, my parents had stopped going, but I was still going. Um, I mm. loved being a part of something. And I think, you know, looking back now, I got lots of dopamine from it. Yeah. Just being around people and feeling music, feeling loved. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I remember just, I would get in my car after something like that and just feel like so hopeless and so empty. And it just was like an awful feeling, you know, like, Sometimes it was like, is it even worth going back? Because I know I'm going to feel this afterwards. Um, and I would, I would avoid going home because as I got older, my mom would kind of pick fights with me. Um, like literally I was at church almost all the time helping with different things. And at like most parents would be like, my kid's at church all the time. Like what a good kid. Right. You know? And I had, I made good grades. And all my siblings were dealing with addiction and they were in and out of jail. And, um, and like, I felt like I was doing a pretty good job, like in comparison. And, uh, it just was like, it was just never enough. Um, and so she would be mad that I, that I wasn't home more and that I wanted to spend time with other people more. So right, like her own abandonment issues sound like they kicked in. Absolutely. Totally. And, and, you know, it's really sad because by the last like 10 years of her life, she had no friends. She had pushed everybody away. And I saw her, you know, looking back, I can tell she was, I know she was splitting uh, at the time. I didn't know what it was, but people would be like such good friends for her. And maybe they would be her, their favorite, her favorite person. I don't know. But then they would say, one thing like be honest about one thing or say they couldn't do one thing and that was it like they we would never hear from them again and she did that with everybody and so by the end of her life she was alone like and it's really sad yeah Yeah. and she probably didn't even have the understanding that that's what she was doing no no because I know for me like I've been more like recognizing when I'm splitting which seems to be happening more or I'm just recognizing it more I can't tell yeah and like I have to be like very consciously like Lori you are splitting right now 
you know, use your skills to try and not do this because it may not be what you actually want. And so like, if you didn't know what that was and you didn't have the skills to try and like wise mind your way out of it, it would be virtually impossible to not cut people out of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen my brother do the same thing. But yeah, the the learning to recognize things has been a huge part of my healing, like recognizing when I'm splitting on someone. And sometimes like I, so, so part of my healing and journey has been learning to communicate very directly. So sometimes with my close, like people close in my life, if I find myself splitting on them, I will share that with them. Yeah, And, you know, letting them know that they have no responsibility. They didn't do anything, but like, maybe I need to like step back for a second because I'm feeling these things and I need to deal with them. You know, I've basically like come to the place where if you're not neurodivergent or have something going on, like you're probably not a good fit for my life because I need people who are comfortable, like talking directly about how we feel and like saying uncomfortable things to each other you know, that other people find weird, like, what do you need right now? Do you need me to listen? Or do you need me to validate where a lot of people kind of feel awkward saying that like me and my closest friends do that all the time, stuff like that. So yeah, that was kind of a rabbit trail. But no, but I, I totally agree. Like, especially that direct communication that we have to have. That's not how most people communicate. So like, I think to some people that can feel almost mean to to, to be like, Hey, this is what I need. And this is not what I'm getting or whatever, dear manning it or whatever you want to do. And I know a lot of my friends, like, I just, I look at them and I go like, how the fuck, like, not necessarily with me, but I mean, I'm sure there are situations with me as well, but I just don't know it, but like where they're having challenges with like parents or friends or whatever in their lives. And I'm like, how have you not called them out on that? Or like, how have you not yeah. expressed your concern? Because that's like fucked. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, whereas, and whereas I would miserable. just be like, hey, dude. Yeah. To just be like so afraid of conflict, I guess, that you can't yeah. even express your own needs. Like that's, it's it's one thing to be like, not an asshole, but you have to be able to be like direct about what you need. Yeah. I think our, like our society too kind of teaches like, just swallow it down and you know just don't don't cause waves and especially women like you don't want to be seen as dramatic or needy and so you just kind of swallow it and you know try to get over it and become better about it (laughs) I was gonna say it just gets worse and worse and worse it just escalates yeah Yeah. and seeing my mom do that like I I didn't want to do that so I mentioned my siblings, like, it was, like, just a really volatile situation. All three of them that I grew up with ended up in prison for some amount of time. My in and out of jail a lot, never knowing who was going to be living at home and who wasn't. And so uh, I was thinking about this, and I think the first time I remember feeling depressed was in sixth grade. And then I started, I remember feeling like having like stomach issues and feeling just awful later on in high school. 
And looking back now, I know like it was anxiety and yeah. yeah. So in ninth grade, my, my dad dropped me off at, at, uh, or maybe he picked me up. I don't remember. He picked me up from youth group one night and he told me that my mom had cancer. And, uh, so obviously that's, that's difficult and confusing and scary for anybody. And then that same year, maybe like pretty soon after that, I, I don't know, it was a long time ago. My timelines kind of get mixed up and I'm kind of missing like a whole year from high school from my memory. Like my friends will tell me stories that, that happened. And I'm like, I literally have no memory of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's kind of weird, but my mom was really stressed out with some stuff that was going on with my brother. And she was like on the verge of a mental breakdown. And so she decided to leave for a while, which like, I, I do get that now. Like I, I do get it. I don't know if it was the right decision, but as, as a kid, that was really confusing and scary. And it was very open-ended. I just kind of felt like she was gone forever. You know, like it was Mm -hmm. just like, like I, it was just like, she left us, you know? Um, which is about the time I started self-harming. Yeah. Triggered your abandonment um, issues, self-harm, everything. Yeah. And I, I remember like, it was an outlet for my anger. I, I've never been one that explodes outwardly. I, it, it is all inward. And I was getting to the point where I was feeling so angry that I was afraid I was going to explode on someone. So you took it out on yourself. Yeah. And so it, you know, became kind of a release for that. And eventually, I don't know how long it was. It was several weeks, maybe a couple of months. I honestly don't know. But my dad told me we were going to go to Florida to pick her up because she was staying with some friends. And dad had found out about the self-harm one day when I was doing the dishes. And he dealt with it in the best way he knew how, like, he actually mentioned it, which I mean, in hindsight, I'm surprised that he did because he was like very conflict averse. He kind of made a joke about it and told me I needed to tell mom. And uh, when I I told mom, <laughs> her response was, well, that's stupid. <laughs> and I was like, all right, you know, I, I'll never tell you anything again. So yeah, it wasn't the healthiest relationship <laughs> ever. And it was it was just a really painful relationship. Yeah, so I met my husband in Tennessee when we were going to school. Um, and I knew I didn't want to go back to my hometown in North Carolina. I didn't want to be close to my family. And it was a really small town. And like, I just felt like there was nothing for me. And we got engaged and he's really close to his family. And so we moved up here and, um, I started going to therapy. Well, we got pregnant, like, like two years later. And I started going to therapy because I really wanted to work on stuff with my mom. I knew I, I had accepted that she wasn't going to change. And so I had kind of come to this place where she's not going to change. I need to learn how to deal with this and how to set boundaries. And because this, it was like so stressful. So I started going to that. And then while in there learning to set boundaries, 
I realized that I did not want my mom to be up here when I had the baby because she would make it all about her. She would get her feelings hurt about things that like were not intentional. You know, if we weren't paying her enough attention or I, and yeah. it was causing me yeah. so much stress to even think about not even the fact that she was there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I told her that I had made that decision and I said, you know, we'll come down at the end of October to visit you and we'll stay down there for like a week and you can meet the baby and all that kind of stuff. And she like pretended she was okay with it, but like you could tell she was really not happy about it. So we had the baby and I loved being a mom in the beginning. Like I loved the newborn stage and it was just like, it was so good those first couple of months. And then at the end of September, so this is 2012, at the end of September, she got sick all of a sudden. And my dad called Your me. mom. Yeah. yeah. Um, and my dad called me and said, it was like late at night. And he said, you should probably come down because I don't know if your mom's going to make it through the night. And she had developed a really bad case of pneumonia um, that had caused her to be septic. And so by the time we got down there, like we left right away. And by the time we got down there, she had been put in a medically induced coma. Um, wow. And we sat around the hospital for a couple of days. And having my daughter there was like, it was kind of, it was an extra thing, but it really added some needed joy and happiness in like such a dark time for us. I think like anytime you lose somebody, it's awful and it hurts. But when the relationship is complicated and like wrought with pain, like it's just another level of just because to be honest with you, I was a bit relieved when my mom died. Not a lot of people will say that, but a lot mm -hmm. of people feel that, especially when they have really hard relationships, because not only was it such a stressful part of my life, but she was miserable. She was just miserable right. physically. Like they found out she had like three types of cancer after she died and, and just emotionally, you know, like all of us can relate to being like untreated at some point and how miserable you are. So, you know, it was complicated because feeling lots of really confusing different emotions and I had a baby I was breastfeeding so there was like so much yeah, all hormones, hormones. <laughs> yeah um and it wasn't real at first it wasn't real until we got back home and things kind of settled and then I just broke down and um trying to parent in the midst of that is fucking hard because you're already exhausted and it brings up everything, you know, it's very triggering. Um, Did you feel any guilt or sadness about the fact that your relationship with your mom hadn't kind of resolved when she passed? Yeah, absolutely. I felt a lot of sadness. Um, mm -hmm. I did feel guilt for a long time about not letting her come to the, mm -hmm. to the, the birth because her feelings were hurt about that. And our last conversation that we had had was a couple weeks before. And it was not a great conversation. Like we, 
my husband and I had been um, sending them like $300 a month to help them get by. And long story short, they were given a car and uh, their car payment was $300. And so I had mentioned like, oh, well, that's great. You can take that car back and now you don't have to spend that. Not thinking at all, like we would stop sending her money or anything. So she was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And then like a couple days later, she called me and she was like, so I've been thinking, which was like, oh, it was like such a triggering thing. You're like, fuck, she's been thinking again. Like, this is not good. (laughs) That's not. Yeah, that's that's the worst thing. Stop thinking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And. And she basically accused me of feeling like I I didn't want to send her money anymore. And so that's why I suggested she take the car back. And I was so mad and hurt. And I was like, I just, and I, I did tell her this. I was like, I, why can't you give me the benefit of the doubt? Like, when have I ever done something against you? Like, I've always been for you. You know, I'm on your team. I'm on your side. And it feels like you always just expect the worst of me. So that was our last conversation. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, definitely dealt with some guilt. I'm at a point now where I still think I made the right decision for totally. us. Yeah. Um, and I just want to clarify. I had to work. Yeah, I just want to clarify my question about guilt isn't, isn't because I think you should feel guilty. It's because I have a difficult relationship with my mother and I'm normally at total peace with it right I've radically accepted basically everything that you said about like it's never going to change it is what it is we just have to set boundaries but I do worry on occasion that if she passes I'm going to be like oh my god why did I not have a better relationship with her you know what I mean so I was just curious in that sense yeah no I didn't take it I didn't take it as you were saying I should Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we're good. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, I think about that too because uh, I, my brother, my sister, I have gone non no contact with them for the last couple of years because you know we all had traumatic upbringing, but they are not doing the work, and I feel for them. Like I, I see that they're in a lot of pain, but what they were bringing into my life, excuse me, what they were bringing into my life was very toxic and when I would try to set boundaries they weren't respected and so I've gone no contact with both of them and I do think of that from time to time like am I going to regret this if I find out that one of them dies you know but you know the the truth is you probably will feel guilty and that's something you'll work through and acknowledge and hopefully come out on the other side knowing that you made the right decision. Totally. And I feel like, you know, with your siblings, if it's at the end of the day, you've got to take care of yourself. Right. And it sounds like going no contact. I don't think any of us make that decision lightly because we have our own abandonment issues and our own like guilt issues and stuff. We don't make those decisions lightly. So yeah, like it's, if it's in the best interest of you and your family, then you have to do what's in the best interest of you and your family. And there's no no need to feel guilt. Yeah. The amount of stress I had, even when like I would get a text or anything from them, it was just awful. So, Oh man, I have so much more to say. And it's like (laughs) already one, almost one forty. 
Okay. Um, say what say what you say whatever you feel is right and we can always do a second episode if there's like cuz this this bit about your family is so interesting and so important. We can always do another episode another day about okay, a different cool. topic if you want. But either yeah. way, say whatever you would like. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So in 2014 I had my second baby and I had really bad post postpartum depression with her. And it wasn't like the typical, well, the stereotypical, just like crying all the time. I was just very numb and detached. And that was not my experience with my first baby. And so it was very concerning for me and very confusing. And I felt a lot of guilt because my first baby was not even two at the time. And I had a C-section, so I couldn't pick her up. And I just felt so much guilt anytime that I would like spend one-on-one time trying to bond with the baby that I wasn't, that I was like ignoring the first one. And I was so paranoid about making her feel jealous or making her feel not loved anymore, which was not a very helpful thought pattern. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. So I feel like I really missed out on my second daughter's like, newborn phase which makes me really sad like that's something I still grieve quite often I look back at pictures and I'm just like I don't know if I necessarily want to go back there because (laughs) yeah a bitch uh but like a day back would be kind of nice (laughs) Uh, yeah or like to be able to to be able to reflect and not be it not had been not have been dissociated the whole time which kind of sounds like what you were dealing with yeah And I would like my husband would get home from work and I would be like, I just need to go. And he's always been amazing at just like letting me do what I need to do. So I would just go drive because I didn't want to be home because it just felt so bad, you know? So, I mean, really after she was born, that's when things just got like so much harder. Parenting two is so different than parenting one. At least it was for me. At like some level of me wanted to have another baby, but like, I just couldn't do it. You know, like I, and, and this is like 18 to life, you know, like, it's not like a, like I want another puppy. <laughs> it's, it's a big commitment. So I didn't feel like it was fair to anybody for us to do that again. And, and my husband was on the same page, thankfully. And then I had like a whole bunch of deaths happen. In 2016, my brother died unexpectedly, and we had not talked in a while. I wasn't no contact with him, but he was like, he was this guy who, at his heart and his core, was such a good person. And he tried so hard to be good, but all the trauma and pain and anger, and he dealt, he was an addict. It just got the best of him. And he didn't, you know, I, I, I often think about the privilege I have had in, so all four of us grew up in the same house. We had different upbringings. I was the youngest. They were the oldest. Um, my older two siblings, their dad died. And so my dad was their stepdad and they're quite a bit older than me. But when you're a kid, you don't pick your coping mechanisms, right? Like you just do what you do and my coping mechanism they were never 
super maladaptive, like not great habits, but while my siblings, you know, turn to drugs and those kind of things as their coping mechanisms, I was never tempted to do that. It wasn't like I made a choice not to do drugs. It was just like never a temptation. And I also, you know, like I had an easier temperament than my siblings. And so I had more people kind of coming in outside of my family and like pouring into my life where they didn't have that. And um, so I don't know if it's weird. This sounds weird, but I have a bit of survivor's guilt about that. Like that I had all of these privileges that they didn't have, you know, and then we can afford therapy and all of that kind of stuff. I was able to go to college. They weren't able to go to college. Um, so, so when I say that he was an addict and like got the best of him, I say that with all the compassion in the world. Like it is not a judgment. Um, I really love how you speak about that because it's, it's so easy to, I mean, I don't think anybody that listens to this podcast hopefully is like, you know, having a substance use issue is a choice, is a choice, right? Like nobody, hopefully nobody thinks that, but it is hard, even if we don't say it out loud to be like, well, we had the same upbringing and how did we turn out so differently? And so your, your empathy there is really beautiful. Thanks. But yeah, he, so he died. Um, and I could always tell when he was using again, because he would just disappear out of my life. And I think like we had a really special relationship, even though it wasn't often, we loved each other so much, you know, and I think he didn't want to disappoint me. And so he would just withdraw. And so I know he was using at the end of his life because I hadn't heard from him in months. And I, I went down as soon as I could. And like, he died while I was on my way down there. Um, And then 2019, it was like May, April or May. And I found out that uh, this really good friend of mine who had been kind of a father figure in my life had passed away in February and they had like put it on Facebook, assuming everyone would be able, like would know. And I never found out about it. So I wasn't able to go to the funeral and I was just devastated. Like it was, yeah. it was just awful. You know, there was no closure there and and my like abandonment issues my imposter syndrome was like well obviously I wasn't as special to him as he was to me or they would have called me like I would have been on their list you know and now I look back and I know that's not true but at the time it felt really shitty you know Hmm. yeah and then at the end of 2019 my dad died um he had been sick for a while and uh I was able It was very different with him because I had been in therapy for a really long time by then. And I had done a lot of healing um, and I was uh, able to sit with him and and just like feel love and compassion for him instead of any anger. For a while, I had a lot of anger of like, why didn't you protect me from this? You know, like, um, but uh yeah. So I was there for his last days and I held his hand as he took his last breaths. And, and it was just like the grieving process was so different. Like it was not easy because it's grief, but it was so much easier than 
with all the other people because there was closure and um, wasn't nearly as complicated. But yeah, and then COVID happened. Uh, like, you know, the beginning right, of yeah. 2020. And then that was like, so my daughter got her, uh, got diagnosed as autistic like a week before uh, they closed down schools. And oh then, God. yeah. And then at the end of the summer, we moved. Uh, we were outgrowing our place and there was like a thing that happened that we needed. We just needed to get out of where we were. And, um, and I think by the time things kind of settled down, my body was like, what the fuck just happened? You know, like right. it kind of processed everything and things got really dark and really bad. And I, I was suicidal and in bed for days and days and days. And my best friend came over and begged me to go to the hospital. And so the next day she came over and drove me to the hospital. And uh, that's when I got the, my diagnosis, my bipolar two and my EPD diagnosis. Wow. And so it was after all of that. So you didn't even yeah. have the like framework no. of why, oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the bipolar two, like I had mentioned before, like I expected that that was no surprise, but when he said BPD, because of all of this that I just told you, my response was like, um, no, no. (laughs) And I, I remember him saying like, when we were talking about the psychiatrist and he goes, um, what do you think about BPD? And I was like, like, what about it? And he was like, I think you have it. And I was like, no, I'm sure that's wrong. I don't think I have it. Like, I I don't think so. And then he went over with me and he was like, this is this and this is this. And I was like, fuck, like, I do have it. And, and then I spent the next like several months after I had accepted that, okay, I have this reprocessing, like all of these life experiences through that lens. And I was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. And it was very healing to be able to see like these were this was not your fault like you did the yeah. best that you could you know and you can clearly see the genetic component oh, in your yeah, life absolutely so it's like absolutely yeah which is always so interesting right it was kind of the same with me where my dad is not diagnosed but definitely has borderline traits at the very least and it's like yeah. oh right so like this is literally just biology and and like and an environment that that yeah, taught, yeah. taught me that my feelings weren't valid or whatever but yeah it's such an interesting realization and i'm glad that you were able to get to that like helpful piece because i find this was one of the questions that i asked in my research was what was your diagnosis process like and a lot of people who knew about borderline before they got diagnosed were they went to the like defensive as opposed to like, oh, this is helpful and I can move forward. So I'm glad that you were able yeah. to kind of get get from one to the other. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, the the genetics and environment part, like I'm fairly certain, I hate to be an armchair, like diagnose people, but I'm fairly certain that my brother and my sister both have BPD as well. 
but like everything just made sense. Like my chronic feelings of emptiness, like the rage that I felt at myself, my identity issues, like never knowing who I was. I would like group hop all the time in high school and college, like and and it was less about just like being super friendly, although I was like, I think a lot of it was like trying to find where I fit. And just like all throughout life, even now I struggle with this, just like this feeling of like discontentedness, you know, like something's not right. Something is wrong and I don't know what it is. The feelings of emptiness are something I still really, really struggle with. I'm thankful to have a, a name for it now and having a name for it and learning about it. I've been able to learn about like what coping mechanisms I've been using to try to fill that. And so when I start like being pulled in a direction, I'm like, okay, why? Like kind of getting curious about it and saying like, why am I wanting to like binge right now? Is it, you know, what is it? Um, Yeah. I feel uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been helpful. Sometimes I still choose to binge because it mm-hmm. makes me feel better momentarily or do whatever. And sometimes it's like, you know, the ignorance is bliss thing. <laughs> it's like, this is kind of easier when I didn't know why I was doing it. Cause now it feels like a choice that I'm doing. Yes. It. <laughs> yes. Totally. Totally. I'm seeing a dietitian right now and like about binge being uh-huh. binge eating. And, and I'm like, you know, talking about hunger cues or whatever. And I was like, I know I'm not hungry but I'm going to binge because it's not about hungry. I don't Yeah. like, why am I even thinking about hunger cues? This isn't what it's about. This is about me filling some sort of like internal void with something that feels good. Like I know what it is. I'm still going to do it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Another big thing. And it's hard to say like what the biggest, like what the hardest symptom of it for me is. And it's also with like having comorbid diagnoses, it's hard to know where one stops and the other begins. Like so many things overlap, but it's important that I can figure out what's going on because how I would treat a bipolar episode is very different than how I would treat a BPD episode. Not super duper different, but it can be different. Like if I know it's a bipolar episode, it's something I just have to like ride out it's not necessarily triggered by anything. My BPD episodes tend to be triggered by something. And so I need to do the hard work then of saying like, what's happening, you know? Yeah. Um, Because I think that's one of those things that comes with like really understanding your BPD is previously like pre-diagnosis, pre-treatment, pre-whatever. A lot of people go like, I didn't have it. I didn't know what, like there was no trigger. And it's like, there was, but it might've been this like tiny little thing that you just like couldn't yeah. figure out. So that's, yeah. Absolutely. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time that I realized like, this is what a trigger is, you know, like I had had this super big reaction to something so small and I was at church actually. And I, I had gone into the bathroom because I was just a fucking mess. Like I couldn't stop crying. And I was like, what is wrong with me? And I had the diagnosis at that time and it just clicked like, oh, that thing that that person just said, completely innocent, no other person would have gotten so like upset about it, 
triggered me. And I remember that moment where I realized what a trigger was, you know, like that's kind of been life changing. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so what I was going to say before I got on that rabbit trail was like one of the hardest parts for me has been the favorite person aspect that is like a very, very high on the spectrum of like symptoms for me. When I found out that I had BPD and found out about what a favorite person is, it made a lot of sense because my whole life, since I was a little girl, I mentioned earlier, like seeking out father figures, I would attach to someone. There was an older man that I attached to. Uh, He was a friend of, he was the husband of one of my mom's friends. And I just was like, literally, I was little. So I would literally attach myself to him. And I barely knew him. And then growing up, it was always like my youth pastors, just this very like, and I would think about them all the time. And it was never was it romantic. It was never, no, it was okay. not romantic. It was never romantic. It was, it was just this obsession with them. And I never told anybody about my, like how I would get obsessed with people. I I didn't stalk people, but like I could have easily gotten into that territory, you know, where and then social media made it so easy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't put it together until the diagnosis and like working through some more trauma that all of the people I was obsessed with were like older men. And I just it made so much sense, you know, seeking and, that validation and, that you never had, basically. Yeah. And and then whenever I would open up to one of them or I would perceive them pulling back or I was afraid they were going to abandon me, my whole fucking world would fall apart. Like, I would cry for days. I would be so out of control. I couldn't get my shit together. And now I'm in a place where I definitely still get FDs, but I know what they are. And I'm able to like use wise mind when I'm making decisions about like when I'm going to reach out to them or whatever. My current FP is a really good friend of mine. Um, We've become, I've become really close to him and his wife and he knows I've, I've communicated like they've been there through for me through everything. And I remember (laughs) having the conversation and, you know, I, he knew, he understood what a favorite person was and stuff. And I was like, so currently, like, you're my favorite person. And he was like, oh, that's really nice. And I was like, believe me, it is not nice. <laughs> like, yeah. this is not, this is not a title you want, I promise. But that relationship has been actually really healing because he's stuck around, you know, and he's, I don't know, like, I, I just didn't realize how until I started talking about it, how healing that relationship has been in regards of that seeking that kind of relationship. You know, the fact that he has stuck around and accepted me and like the fact that I told him like, you're my favorite person didn't scare him off, you know? Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'm glad you have a person in your life. I mean, even like having FPs is the worst, but I'm glad that 
you have one that you can communicate that with because I feel like that's where it can be okay as opposed to like being completely obsessed with a person who you can't communicate that with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, exactly. I think, you know, when I would get to the point where he's super busy, so he can't communicate all the time. I have a, we have a chat going him and his wife and me, and we hang out, you know, every couple of weeks, but we check in with each other but he's really busy. And so he can't always respond right away. And on my best days, I'm like, they're busy. It's no problem. But when I'm not in a good place, I'm like, they hate me. Like, why do they hate me all of a sudden, you know? And I've been able to, I'm usually to the place where I can talk myself back down. And I actually have like a file, a folder on my phone that I keep uh, screenshots from not just them, but other people um, who have sent me messages that talk about like what I mean to them or like when they say like affirmations about me that I can go back and read those and remind myself like these are the facts like uh, you know they're they're there for you they love you they've shown nothing but that um, but at some point when it's like I haven't heard from him in like a couple weeks he's given me permission to say hey like, I need you to communicate with me, you know, like yeah. even just to yeah. say, and so to have that freedom to be able to say, like, logically, I know that you're not going anywhere, but it really feels like, you know, you're leaving me right now. And that's been really healing. So, and I, do, I, I haven't had to do that nearly as much. Because he uh, knows. As so I, as, yeah. yeah. Does yeah. his wife get weird about it? No, not at all. Cause we're very close to, nice. um, and, and I, you know, they, they both know that it's not like a romantic thing at all. Um, that it's just like a father figure thing. Yeah. I don't, she's great. And we, I'm very close with her as well. That's but, really cool that you can have that relationship yeah. with both of them. It's really cool. It's really cool. I'm very thankful for them. I bet. So I know that you probably had a lot more that you wanted to talk about. I don't know if there was like big topics that you didn't get into that you were hoping to, but we are out of time for this episode. So a couple things. One, is there another episode that you would want us to schedule about like more of your story that you, that you didn't get into? I would love to talk about parenting and like how, how all of that works. And I guess more of like, on a daily basis, what this looks like for me. Um, I don't know if it's a whole episode worth. Um, it probably but, is. Yeah. Once even if talking, it's a, yeah. even if it's a 20 minute episode, it doesn't matter. Like it's still yeah. super valuable. And that's a topic that people are really interested in. So I think we should do yeah. that. Yeah. I'm, I'm super happy to have you back. We'll have to schedule it if you're willing. Like this was such yeah, an awesome absolutely. conversation. I would love to hear it. My final question for you, which I've started doing at the end of every episode for this season is what are your favorite parts of BPD? I think with all of my mental stuff, (laughs) the creativity that it gives me is huge. I'm an artist and creating things is what makes me happy. You know, sometimes when I'm in a bad place, 
creating can keep me out of bed. Not always, but sometimes. And then the other thing is like my sensitivity to things. I used to see me being so sensitive to things as a big weakness. And now I view it like a superpower. Like it was really dangerous before I learned how to control it, you know, well, not control it, but how to utilize it and to know a little bit how to rein it in and talk myself down a little bit when I need to. But it makes me a very compassionate person, a very empathetic person. And I don't think that I would be that way if it weren't for borderline, like if I weren't as such a sensitive person, you know? I totally agree. Yeah. Like we were talking about having to learn how to communicate our needs and stuff. Part of that has helped me be able to really advocate for destigmatization of BPD. I talk about it a lot on Facebook um, and about the experience and what it is. And I've had so many people reach out to me and tell me like how helpful it is that I talk about things so candidly. Just learning to communicate clearly has given me that skill. Yeah. I mean, we hear messages like that all the time too, of people saying like, I literally have never met another person who has BPD or, you know, you've helped. I'm sure like your Facebook posts and stuff have helped people whose like family members have BPD or that they're questioning their BPD. And it's such a beautiful thing that we can take our superpower and our passion and turn it into something so positive when it started as something so negative. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, Thank you so much, Cassie Marie, for coming on. I've absolutely loved talking to you and we will definitely have you back for an episode specific to parenting. Yeah, I'm glad that we were able to make this happen. I know that I've canceled several times. Uh, <laughs> All good. And uh, so I was really excited to talk to you. So I'm always excited to talk to you anytime. Have a great right. afternoon. Bye. You too. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.